collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Collective Power. Today, as my guests, I have Robin Wright Pierce. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, Rita. I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I always, I started like the whole first season saying, I'm really excited to be here with it. I am excited at the beginning of every episode. I'm just a highly excitable being. I try to get rid of it, and it just sounds wrong if I don't, because it's actually true that I'm excited. Yeah. So thank you for being with us today. You are a DEI practitioner and consultant, and I know you from a common kind of leadership journey and rites of passage program that we're in, Fire and Water. But most of all, I consider you a friend. So you're, you're a colleague, but I consider you a friend. And we, we've been in this journey of growing up in the past year, this kind of bold journey of questioning everything and putting it back together. So thank you for being a sister on the journey with me in that way. Likewise. And the topic we're talking about is still kind of love and fear and the relationship between love and fear. And what does it take to actually systematically choose love over fear and what a practice that is? So I know that you've been on that journey too, and I'm excited to hear what you have to contribute to us, uh, both about your personal journey and your experience working with organizations. Mm -hmm. So before we start today, I'd like just to ask you to Tell us a story about yourself that um, has the listeners know you a little bit more the way I know you, right? Like the heart and spark and uh, sense of humor <laughs> that you have, but especially gives us an insight into why this topic is important to you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for this invitation, just to be here with you in this conversation. You know, sharing a story, it's interesting and a little bit challenging to think of what is a story about me that really kind of gives some insight into how I am in relationship with love and fear. And for me, it's more of a series of stories, right? It's more of an arc of my journey and of who I am today, right? And how I've come to be who I am today and sort of this, this whole experience, of, right, that we call life. And so when I think about, you know, my own experiences and journey as it relates to this particular topic of love and fear, things that I believe are in many ways sort of two sides of a coin uh, are really two sides of probably a cube. There's some other sides to this as well. 
And, you know, I think about my own life journey so far and a lot of my relationship to love and fear is rooted in my own experiences. Part of the difficulty in answering this question or this invitation to share a story is also because, as you know, Rita, in our fire and water journey, part of what we're in the process of doing is exploring the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Stories that we tell others about who we are, what has happened to us, right? What experiences we've had, how the world works, right? How the world functions and how we fit into that. I'm wrestling with that a little bit as I share this story. But for me, my relationship to love and fear as it relates to my own experiences is really rooted in very much in my experience as a Black woman and growing up in a white supremacist culture, right? Growing up in a white supremacist society, growing up in a patriarchal society, and then growing up in impoverished communities in a society that tells us that our worth is connected to wealth and that uh, our belonging and our mattering is connected to all these spaces of whether or not we have privilege, right? As a Black woman growing up in a poor community and in a poor family, I was often in the category of those being marginalized. And so, you know, in many ways, my interest in this topic is connected to the ways that my childhood experiences and my early life experiences really created conditions Uh, that led me to operating out of a place of fear and scarcity, right? Always wanting to prove that I belong, prove that I matter, being fearful that I will be rejected, being fearful that I won't be included, right? Always having to feel as though I had to really hustle, 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 right? Because if I don't get resources, if I don't make some money, right? then I don't matter, right? All these ways, the fear of scarcity, the fear of going without, the fear of not being a part of, so heavily drove everything that I did. Impacted how I showed up in school. It impacted how I showed up in social environments, right? With my friends. Um, It impacted, most importantly, my relationship to myself and how I thought about myself. That has been a big part of how I come to this conversation is having gone through so much of my early years of life and through college and early career, really being in this space of operating out of fear, always in hustle, always concerned about my relationship and inclusion in our society, right? And whether or not I truly matter, am I enough, right? All these things that drove how I showed up in the world and even how I pursue racial justice in my work was heavily impacted by these things. And so, you know, I'm now in this space. As I think about that, I've been on this journey of asking myself, you know, how do I move more toward a place of fearlessness? Right, a place of courage, a place of being rooted in love, being rooted in something more deeper. And that's sort of where I am in this space of love, right? Of asking myself, what does it mean to truly love myself? Right? What does it mean to truly trust in my own mattering and my own enoughness? And to live from that vantage point so that the fear doesn't become constricting, right? Because I think fear is always there. The question is, how does it actually 
drive our decisions and our behaviors. Could you give us an example of an an instance in which, you know, you were talking about how your childhood kind of informed how you were driven by fear in the early years of your career? Could you give us an example of that? So little things like, you know, being in high school and being scared to apply to more competitive colleges, right? Fearful that I won't get accepted or being fear driven in my pursuits of racial justice. And so I think about when I first started my career, a lot of my pursuits of racial justice was coming from the vantage point of, I have to do something. If I don't do something, then the whole world is going to crash, right? And like this fear that I have to be engaged or else, right? As opposed to, and so I was operating in a standpoint of like, I'm going to fight against the system because I fear what's happening in the system, right? As opposed to a place of love of saying, you know, I'm going to be a stand for life and a stand for love, right? And a stand for something more. And so I think about a, a time when I was working for a statewide policy organization and it seemed like one thing after the other, after the other kept happening, right? So we're fighting all these different issues. And one day, literally one day, I'm like helping to plan a rally around immigration rights, right? And and then the very next day, I'm like doing work with LGBTQ activist groups around Supreme Court decisions that were affecting equal rights. And then two days later, I'm like, leading a lobby day in DC for something. And it was like, and all of those things was out of fear. It was like, okay, we got to be responsive to every single thing, right? We have to constantly be vigilant and live from a place of vigilance. And we can't rest because if we dare rest, then everything's going to fall apart. If we dare rest, if we dare to take a moment and pause, or to care for ourselves, then everything's going to fall apart. And for me, that was fear-driven. That was a place of scarcity. That was a place of like, I have to do all the things all the time. I can't trust that I can do my part and work with others to do their part and that that will be enough, right? Or that love will win. So a fight against posture. And what happened that made you shift? Like, I can feel the intensity of that way of living, right? Just by you saying, like, four weeks, I'm advocating for all these things, like immigration, LGBT, I've I've got it. Like, whatever, you name the issue, I'm working for it. Right. So what changed? Like, what what was the turning point to where the way you're living now? Yeah, I mean, my turning point is in my own healing journey, the exhaustion, You know, because, you know, I shared earlier being a black woman in a lower income household and communities, you know, there's things that come with those conditions, right? The condition of poverty comes with so much at a family level and at a community level. And for me, that included a lot of proximity to violence and experiences of violence. And so growing up with an alcoholic parent who was violent and abusive, growing up in communities where violence was the norm and drugs were ever present, right? I didn't come out of that unscarred, right? And so, you know, I remember maybe my junior or senior year of college, I was diagnosed with PTSD. 
And that diagnosis, it really catapulted my healing journey because I got diagnosed in part because I was one trying to understand why I was struggling with depression, why I was waking up in the middle of the night screaming, right? Why I was so easily triggered into flashbacks. And for a long time, therapists didn't know how to classify what was happening because I had never been to war. And it's only more recent that folks are starting to actually acknowledge that PTSD can be present, even if there hasn't been that level of war engagement. And so for me, my turning point was my own fight for my life, right? I started to notice that as I was going in my healing journey through therapy, through mindfulness meditation, right? And learning to really settle my nervous system and ground myself in something more stable, I started to notice that the way I was engaging in activism work with organizations and in communities was fueling vigilance and um, hypervigilance. It was fueling a lot of this like state of being constantly in chaos and like, ah, right. Like, and so for me, my fight for my life required that I start to question my relationship to activism work and my relationship to myself and other people in their communities. And so that was my turning point was saying, to, I have to do this, right? Like I have no choice but to change how I'm engaging in activism work to come from a place that's more grounded in truth, power, and love and less operating out of a place of scarcity and fear. Thank you for sharing that. I have a similar story of burnout. And I find it fascinating how it's our bodies that have to wake us up to the fact that we're worth fighting for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I resonate deeply with your story of I'm fighting for everyone and like kind of until I have to look at myself in the mirror and discover mm-hmm. that I have nothing left for anyone else. Or that I shortly will have nothing left for everyone else because the road is that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the body is such an amazing vehicle for healing journeys for that reason. I often say to people, yeah, if you don't rest, your body will find a way for you to rest. Yes. Right? Like your body, that's how we get sick. That's how we end up with all the many variations of sickness that we could possibly have, but it's like either we rest or the body will say, all right, at some point the body will say, we'll force it. It'll be like, okay, screw you. I'm not going to make you rest. If you don't rest out of your own volition, I will make it happen. And that was happening to me. Mm -hmm. That was happening to me. I kept getting stomach viruses Mm -hmm. and I will be out for like three or four days where like my whole body It's just revolting. And it was all stress. It was the chronic stress. Engaging in the world in a way where I was not loving myself, right? I was not caring for myself. And I hadn't yet connected the dots that freedom is both personal and collective, right? I hadn't connected that. And, you know, as a Black woman, you know, in the Black tradition of activism, you know, we, from the time we're itty bitty kids, we're getting indoctrinated with the truth that our fates are tied together and that we all have a responsibility to fight for the collective well-being, right? Like that is part of the Black American tradition, right? Um, As it relates to our pursuits of justice. And 
oftentimes what I think is not as frequently gifted to us is that we also like that includes ourselves, right? Like social change includes self, right? And we have to also be fighting for our own freedom within, our own sense of wellness within, while we're working for collective well-being and collective justice and power to do one without the other is just not going to work. And so I had to learn that the hard way. Yeah, I love that. And we're going to come back to the collective in a second. I want to stay on your individual story for a second and just take a couple of steps back. Could you give us like paint a picture of the feel on the other side of this, right? So fast forward, I don't know how many years your healing journey has been, right? But, you know, where you are now, and as long as I, I haven't known you very long, but as long as I've known you, like I know you as this extremely calm, grounded presence, right? Like all the time, that's how I know you, right? And I'm sure you have your moments as we all do. Yes. But I'm just curious, if you could paint a picture for people who don't know you of like, what does life feel like, taste like, sound like on the other side of this, you know, I'm not just fighting for everyone else. I'm actually here to take care of me. I'm not going to say fight for me because I think we can also yeah. release the fight. Right. But like, what's life like from this new space of creating the space of taking <sighs> care of you and having freedom as a choice? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question. Yeah, I think a few words come up for me. It's more full and there's more stability even in the chaos, right? Because there's always chaos. <laughs> it never leaves. And the difference for me is like, how quickly am I swept into the chaos of the world? Oh, and I love how, that. How much am I able to stay stable and grounded? And so that's a big part of the difference for me. There's more space for joy. And there's also, I feel more empowered than I've ever felt in my life now, right? Um, and so even though like I have my days where I'm like, I got to drag myself out of bed or now I sometimes just choose not to. And I say, I'm gone. This day is not going to be the day where I try to push through, right? I'm going to actually allow myself space to sit with whatever's happening inside of me, right? I still have my days and I have my moments of the day, but they don't dominate my life the way that it used to. It's no longer my state of being. It's now like a moment a ripple as opposed to it being the whole ocean, right? And so that's a big difference for me. And so now, you know, I'm able to make intentional choices. Like, what do I want for myself and in my life, right? And how does that connect to the call that I feel to really be a stand for justice and peace in the world, right? And so how do I integrate those things together more? And so I'm, I'm much more in a space of seeking integration. And I will also say it's hard. One of my mentors, she used to say this a lot. This is like maybe eight or nine years ago. She would say this all the time. And I would be like, I don't want any of it. But she would say, choose your heart. The heart of staying in the status quo of an unjust system, of a system that 
keeps you separated from yourself and others that tells you that you have to fit into these particular boxes or choose the heart of choosing your own life, right? And your own mattering and your own vibrancy and learning, like training yourself to keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it. It's not necessarily easy in the sense of like needing effort and intention and time, right? But it is much more rewarding than the other path. Beautifully said. So let's rewind to the conversation about like racial justice and racial activism. You said a few things that I resonate deeply with, which is that the way you were relating to racial justice, which I think is also the way it's kind of depicted in progressive and liberal spaces right now, is we have to work harder, we have to work harder, the world is falling apart, we have to work harder, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And it's all fear-driven. It's or else the world will get worse, right? Mm-hmm. So even now, as you know, we're in these absurd moments where voting rights are are being challenged and right abortion rights are being challenged. All the organizing is in this place of fear. And I made a stand early on to not watch Handmaid's Tale for that reason. (laughs) Because when I watched the first episode, I could just immediately feel this is a series that's creating a panic. So I think what I'd like to hear from you, from your perspective, like, why is it important? Like, what would racial justice look like not driven by fear? And why is it important? Yeah, no, that's a fabulous question, um, because you're right. So much our pursuits of activism is fear driven. And even how we try to bring people into the fold is fear mongering. And so one of the things that comes up for me is if we're operating out of a place of trust and love and not as much being driven by the fear that's around us, then I think part of what activism will look like is being more comfortable getting clear about what each of our individual and organizational roles is in furthering justice and peace in our world and trusting that others are doing the other parts of it. So we don't have to be all the things to all the people. So I think it's part of it is that it's allowing ourselves more space and grace to be clear and to find ways to make movement without feeling like we have to do all the things. I also think that We allow ourselves more space and time to stay in the messiness of transformation and change. I think so often we move the fear and the urgency that we move through this work with makes it hard for us to sit in that middle muddy space of ambiguity and the messiness that comes with human beings coming together to try to do something which life gives us plenty of opportunities to practice, right? Right. Like there's messiness everywhere. There are humans. Everywhere. And so I think, you know, sometimes fear and scarcity and urgency and all these things, right, that are indicative of oppressive systems, like push us to a point where we don't trust in the process and in the people. I think about it like parenting, right? I have a nine-year-old. 
And um, when I think about racial equity work, I think about parenting and there's a lot of correlations there for me. And so one of those correlations is, you know, you can try to enact change and you try to like mold your kid into the best possible person that they can be. And one of the things I've had to learn is like, you can't control the outcomes on that, right? Like you have to like say something, you have to do something, you can kind of control or have some input on like the inputs, right? How are you nurturing your child? How are you supporting your child? How are you helping your child to learn to notice their own life inside of them, their own vibrancy, right? To trust their inner wisdom, right? All these things you can do, obviously the systemic things as well. And sometimes you might say something, I'll say something to my son. And sometimes he'll click right away. He'd be like, yes, mom, you're right. And like 99% of the time, it's like, I got to say this thing at least 20 times before he even considers that there's a possibility. And so a lot of it is learning to trust in the process of continuing to show up with love, show up with love, show up with love, keep reminding him of the truth of who he is, reminding him of the truth of who he is, speaking to his higher self, even when he's an adolescent, right? And so and trusting that that will culminate in the change that we're hoping for. And I think we have to sometimes approach racial justice the same way of trusting that if we are showing up with love, if we continue to show up, continue to show up, continue to show up, we can trust that this will manifest in something more than what's here. And that won't always happen immediately. But I think sometimes because of how we fund our work, especially there's this urgency to have immediate results evident within a one-year grant cycle, right? And that's just not how change happens. And so I think operating from a place of love as opposed to fear in our activism work will include not being so beholden to urgency that tells us that we have to try to control the inputs and the outputs, immediate results right here, right now, that causes us to not allow ourselves to trust in the process and trust that we're actually doing something that's helpful. Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about planting, for what I hear, it's also similar in parenting. I haven't had the pleasure of having kids myself, but if you plant an orange tree, at some point you have to trust that oranges will be born. Mm -hmm. right like you know the seed you planted and you just trust what it is that you planted mm -hmm. right like if you plant a hundred and you don't go dig up the seed every day right you have to just water it which is what you know will make the seed sprout and grow into the bush and so on and so forth but eventually there's a point at which we have to just trust that what we plant grows Mm -hmm. And in our movements, we don't actually trust that what we plant grows. No. We think we have to oppose what we don't want, which mm -hmm. is weeding the garden, which has a place. Mm -hmm. Weeding, you, you got to get rid of what you don't want in the garden to yeah. have space for what you do want. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. But if we just destroy in a garden, there's nothing left. There's nothing left, yeah. The question becomes, how do you start to create a vision for what's possible? You know, I went to a, a gala recently for a national organization doing LGBTQ work. And all throughout the three hours we were there, they just repeatedly kept talking about 
trans women are being murdered, LGBTQ rights are under attack, the don't say gay bill in Florida now in Ohio, where I am, right? Like all these things. And it was just like fear, 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 urgency, 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 give, right? And I'm like, what starts to happen if instead we paint a picture of what's possible, right? So it's not just focusing on what we want to oppose, as you're saying, and like what we want to destroy, but instead saying, okay, what are we building? Because I've learned in my own healing work that I couldn't let go of adaptive strategies without first having some positive, healthy coping strategies to go to instead, right? And so what are we actually inviting people into? What is the way of being with themselves and one another? And in relationship to systems and as stewards of systems, right? Like how are we inviting people to show up and to live and be in the world together in place of what we have, as opposed to saying, we just want to stop this other stuff. And our bodies give us an example of that, right? Because when we get to a place of burnout, if we don't have an active place of restoration, we still don't heal. Yes. Right. If we're not cultivating joy, if we're not cultivating what makes us happy, if we're not like doing things that make us vibrant and alive and right, then we still don't heal. You can get to heal to a certain point just by resting. Right. Mm -hmm. And compensating for whatever the illness is. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's another part of that healing that is about being whole and rediscovering what there is to do. So. I love how you framed that because I, I feel like the body becomes a mirror for what's possible in our mm -hmm. collective, in our society, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's like the micro and the macro come together. Yes. And yes. so you work a lot with organizations. So I, I would love to hear how this journey kind of that we've, we kind of went micro and then we went macro, right? So I love in the middle, there's the nonprofit world, the business world, and all these organizations, many of which are kind of coming to terms with inequality and injustice and want to do something really bad, right? Mm -hmm. And are kind of in that place of that urgency that you talked about earlier in activism work, which in some ways is a wake-up call, which is mm -hmm. welcome, right? For those of us who have been this work for a while, like hail the wake up. Uh, yeah. And because uh, working, trying to work with people who are asleep isn't easy either. <laughs> I don't want to choose that hard. I don't want to work mm -hmm. with people who are asleep. And um, waking up and being in a sense of just urgency, I want something as fast as possible and as tangible as possible can also be problematic. So mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit to your, experience with organizations and how that the fear-driven justice becomes problematic in organizations and kind of what you propose instead. Yeah, it's so I actually think that our institutions have been created in a way that is like almost exclusively rooted in fear. And in many ways, it, it seems to me to be sort of the default way of operating for institutions is out of fear and scarcity. And I think in some ways that's a byproduct of capitalism, right, which tells us there's a zero sum game and, you know, you have to try to fight for your slice of the pie and that, you know, there's no sense of abundance, right? It's all about 
scarcity. It's all about finite nature of resources, of time, of all these things. And so in my experience, that tends to be the default way that organizations operate in general. And that translates to how they pursue equity within their organizations. And so I worked with an organization once that was really focused and interested in becoming an anti-racist organization. I think I'm going to jump ahead and answer your question of what I propose instead first, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is that what I would propose for folks is to remember that institutional change, just like social change, has to include self-change. And I think organizations, we've been taught to engage with institutions as employees of institutions, as leaders of institutions in a dynamic that's sort of compartmentalized, like we're at work. And so we're in work mode and like that's the work stuff and you don't bring your personal stuff into the workplace, right? But the reality is to really pursue equity and justice in your organization, you actually have to grapple with your own personal relationship to power, your personal relationship to patriarchy, your personal relationship to white supremacy, how you've embraced and learned to embody white dominant culture, right? All these different dynamics that are pervasive in our organizations, in part because they're pervasive in society and we've built these organizations within this system, right? And so And also to service the system, right? Even when that isn't our explicit goal, we end up creating institutional models that end up serving the system status quo and participating in it. And so, you know, we have to be willing to disentangle ourselves from those things and to ask ourselves, what else is true? Who are we really underneath that? And we have to learn to choose strategies and approaches to change that really focus on cultivating greater connection, integration, solidarity, understanding, and well-being. And so that's sort of an invitation that I'd like to share because what I've seen on the reverse side is overemphasis on results and not enough honoring of the journey. Being so fixated on a a future goal that you forget to be attentive to what is emerging in front of you right here and right now. And oftentimes in a nonprofit space, that's driven by the need to report progress, right? But nonetheless, it harms your ability to really give the time and space necessary for folks to build their capacity to actually live into the the culture and the operation model that you are striving to create. And so I've noticed that almost universal in organizations that I've worked with. And then also the way that scarcity sometimes keeps us from being able and willing to take bold and courageous action that's necessary if we're actually going to advance radical change, right? The reality is to challenge the status quo in any way, whether it's challenging by choosing and daring to show up differently in the world, or whether it's challenging in the sense of saying, we're going to tear down this thing that is existing, right? However you're approaching it, if you're challenging the status quo, there will be blowback from that, right? The system wants to maintain itself. And so 
And with that blowback is often like a perception of like, this is too risky, right? If we take this stance, what are our donors going to say? If we take this stance, will our board agree? Will our stakeholders, will our shareholders agree? Are we doing too much? Who are we going to lose in this process, right? And so this fear of losing resources, people, relationship often keeps us from taking bold and courageous action. And that's why I've found it's so important to help institutional leaders and groups understand that we have to bring ourselves into this because when we have to, when that moment comes, which it always does, where we are asking ourselves, okay, here's what I know I want to do, but there's all this fear that's keeping me from wanting to take that step. How do we learn to notice the opportunities in the chaos to operate out of an abundance mindset that says that, you know, even if this person disagrees, there'll be other people who are aligned, who will come around, right? Who will support this initiative. It's not true that there's not enough time to make progress on racial equity. How we pursue racial equity might have to look different based on our resources, but there are like this is a priority. And so we have to be willing to lean into that. And so those are some of the themes that I've sort of noticed in my work is that fear, scarcity keeps us from taking bold and courageous action needed for us to advance. And I believe the antidote to that, one of the many antidotes to that is to build our capacity to choose different ways of being in relationship to power, to white supremacy, to capitalism, right? To patriarchy so that we can choose other actions that are in alignment with the values that we say we want to uphold. So I'm curious, in one of your videos that you posted online, you, you asked this great question. You said that before people hire a DEI specialist, they should ask them, how do you think change happens? So uh, I thought it was a fabulous uh, video and a fabulous question. So how do you think change happens? And how do you use that in organizations? Yeah, I believe that change happens when you integrate personal and collective and institutional approaches to transformation. And so for me, this looks like inviting individuals on to say yes to a journey of their own transformation and change. They have to say yes to it, right? If you don't say yes to the journey, then you're not going to be on the journey, right? You're just going to be resisting it along the way. And so inviting individuals. And so sometimes that looks like, you know, dialogic spaces, like having conversation, dialogues, reflection spaces, spaces. For me, I integrate a three-pronged approach of compassionate inquiry, mindfulness, meditation, and courageous action, starting with like small tests of change for people to slowly build up their confidence, taking more bold action than they perhaps would have previously. And so this is coaching, right, with individuals and leaders. This looks like group collective restorative circle spaces. But then this also looks like applying those same approaches of compassionate inquiry, mindfulness, right, and courageous action to institutional operating models, right? And so you know, folks often will get a needs assessment when they're working with institutional culture change and operating models and HR changes. And so how are you mindfully doing that needs assessment and being compassionate in your inquiry 
so that you're able to receive that information and that analysis of what the current dynamics are in your organization in a way that doesn't just look for the negatives, but also honors and looks and seeks out what are the things that are happening well? What are our gifts? What are the opportunity areas in this space? And so how are we being compassionate in our process, even exploring the institutional changes? And then how do we start to bring forth, again, tests of change to lead to transformation. And I think that's critical because inequality is what's considered a wicked problem, right? Meaning that there's so many confounding variables. There's so many different things that can make it difficult for change to happen. You may enact a change in one setting, but it may have a ripple effect that you couldn't have previously anticipated in your work. And so having small tests of change are what I like to call safer to fail experiments where you can practice things on a small scale. Maybe you're starting with one department or one subset of a unit to try out an idea of how you might move things forward, getting information from that and using that to inform how you move it forward on a larger scale. And so I tend to use those types of practices in my work with groups, really integrating the personal work through coaching and collective healing spaces, but then also using that same approach to how we're looking at the institution and how it's operating. But I believe that change happens when you integrate all of that, because you if you can change all the policies in the world, I worked with one organization who, if you looked at their policies, you're like, this is like stellar, like y'all are revolutionary in your ideals, but the culture was really toxic. But like on paper, everything seemed great. And if you all are like crossing every T, dotting every I, what's happening here? And it was because people hadn't built up their capacity to actually live into the operating model that was created. I'd like you to talk, we're running out of time. So we just just a couple of minutes for this question. But I know we've talked about people's relationships with time right? So working in the way you're recommending with these safer to fail experiments, um, what's the relationship with time in the work? Like what are the expectations? How do people's expectations around how long it takes to do this work? Um, What are people's general expectations and what expectations should they have instead? I think universally folks' expectations of how much time it takes is almost always inaccurate. (laughs) And usually we're operating with so much urgency. A lot of times when organizations make a commitment around DEI, it's almost always one or two situations. One, some harm happened, whether it was within their culture and organization that was brought to their attention and are like, we have to make sure this never happens again, or something happens in society, right? Like the murder of George Floyd, where everyone's having this collective awakening and they're like, urgency, we have to make sure that we're aligned with equity and justice. And so because of that, there's almost always a lot of urgency around like, this has to happen tomorrow. And so what what folks who have been organizations who have been doing it for a while have learned very quickly is that it almost always takes more time. And so for me, part of that is why I encourage people to think differently around strategic planning as it relates to DEI work, you know, because it's hard to predict how long 
you need to stay in certain spaces and how much space you need to give for folks to really for integration and learning and to happen and for you to be able to see what emerges from the work that you're doing. Thank you for being with us, Robin. It was a great pleasure. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so I have a website for my consulting firm called The Right Path Consultancy, and it's www.twpath.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn and send me an email at robin at twpath.com, and I would love to stay in contact with folks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.